So we are back to Matthew chapter number 6. Uh, this morning, we are going to finish, uh, finish the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it, was, it was almost exactly a year ago. It was June 3rd, uh, 2018, uh, when I preached the first message that I preached on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm not assuming you remembered anything I said back then or that you were even necessarily here back then. Uh, and so I want to be able to read through this passage again and even for my introduction time to be able to spend a little time reviewing um, just to see if we can get all caught up and then we'll get to the point of today's message um, after a little bit of review. So let's read together um, Matthew, Matthew 6 uh, and let's, let's start, um, we'll really start in verse number 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." What we've really been after in reviewing this template prayer uh, is to see five instructions to encourage better praying. And that's what I hope to conclude with you today, um, two final instructions to encourage better praying. Uh, the Luke account of the Lord's Prayer, uh, we find out that, that Jesus was actually responding to the disciples' request, teach us how to pray. And what Jesus does in, in the Lord's Prayer is he gives us a, a template prayer. Uh, we notice that uh, there in verse number 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. So he, he doesn't say pray this exact prayer, although it's certainly fine for us to repeat the words of this prayer. But he says pray like this. In other words, this is a template. This is a model. This is a pattern. We're intended to learn the principles from this prayer and then apply them in our own prayer lives. So while uh, you may, even as I read it, uh, I don't know if any of you had the urge to start repeating it along with me as I read, like we're used to in Christian group settings, hear the Lord's Prayer, and we say it together, right? There's that instinct within us, and that's totally appropriate. But Jesus' point to the disciples was not just pray this prayer over and over and over again. In fact, he was just telling them to not be like the Gentiles who just repeat things mindlessly. And, and so for us, as we come to the Lord's Prayer, uh, the challenge for us is to take words that are very familiar, that we can probably even quote from memory and recite, and instead of allowing them to just be rote uh, and not even think about them, to actually engage with what are the principles that Jesus is trying to teach us from prayer. And um, our, our goal is for that to be encouraging to us in prayer. So from the very beginning of this, I said that as we study this Lord's Prayer, um, I, I hope that you are encouraged to better praying, not to discourage you by you need to pray more um, or that your prayer life isn't going well, but to encourage you um, to pray better as Jesus has taught us. 
All right, and so what are the five, I think the five major principles or instructions that Jesus gives us to pray the way he teaches us to? Um, we saw, first of all, that we should pray like there is none like God. All right, we should pray like there is none like God. That's the, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So there is none like God. He is our Father, so there is his closeness and his nearness to us. And at the same time, Jesus quickly reminds us that he is our Father, but he is our Father who is in heaven. Right? So he's close, but, he, but he's exalted. And he's unique because he's made us family, and he's near to us, and yet he is also great. Um, he is great in power. Um, and not only is he great in power, but the very first request of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, it's a request that, that God's name be set apart, that we recognize how great he is, because God is unique in his character. So as you are praying uh, day to day throughout the week, you should be praying like there is none like God. You're not just talking to somebody else who is like you or like us. There isn't any like God. And so we should be praying like there is none like God. The second instruction that Jesus gives us is that we should pray like the most important thing in the universe is whatever God wants. Uh, we saw that in verse number 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The single most important thing in our lives and, and on this earth is whatever God wants. That ought to be the, the most important thing to us in our prayer. And, and Jesus says that what it is that God wants. He wants, first of all, the full earthly experience of his kingdom, and secondly, the full practical application of his will. So your kingdom come. And this is God's intention, that his kingdom will come, and it will come here in a very practical, physical reality. And that should be something that is most important to us, the, the entrance of God's kingdom, and for us doing our best to live in those kingdom realities now. Right? So your will be done on earth, uh, and then your will be done, secondly, so his kingdom come, and then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we explored in one of those messages, uh, is God's will being done now? Um, why do we have to ask for that? Um, but what, what Jesus is after is the full practical application of the will of God, which will come one day when Jesus rules and reigns on this earth, and there is no more sin or sickness or death, and we get the full application of God's will. That ought to be what is most important to us, because it's what's important to God. We transition from thinking about God to then bringing our request in verse number 11, and this is what we looked at in the last message, give us this day our daily bread. And we said the instruction is to pray like we depend on God for all of our earthly needs. Right? God is in heaven, but it doesn't mean he is unaware of the reality that we have to eat to live. Right? And so he even instructs us, he instructs the disciples, pray like you depend on me for all your earthly needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Right? So what we need for each day, God provides. So those are the first three instructions that Jesus gives us. Pray like there's none like God. The most important thing in the universe is whatever God wants. And pray like we depend on God for all our earthly needs. So we're, we're coming to our final two instructions uh, to encourage better praying. And here are the final two categories that I think Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. Number one, we should pray like we are in need of forgiveness. And number two, we should pray like we are desperate to overcome sin. And that's what we're focusing on today. Pray like we are in need of forgiveness and pray like we are desperate to overcome sin. All right, let's see this in, in the text. Uh, it says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The great thing about the Lord's Prayer is that it is so condensed, it is so short, and yet it is so incredibly rich. 
And sometimes it's challenging for us to come to words that we're super familiar with and, and, and really study them carefully. And yet, as we come to this Lord's Prayer, it opens up a whole world of praying and thinking for us. And, and so even this prayer, as we pray like we are in need of forgiveness, uh, it's just in, in our Bibles a few simple words, and forgive us our debts. But when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, he is teaching us that we ought to be praying like we are in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the idea of pardon or being released from deserved consequences. That's the idea of forgiveness, to, to be pardoned, to, to be released from something that we really ought to pay. Um, there is a, a much longer uh, definition. comes from a pastor named Chris Braun. Uh, he wrote one of my favorite books on forgiveness. It's called Unpacking Forgiveness. And if forgiveness is a topic you're interested in, I'd really recommend this book to you. Uh, this was his definition of forgiveness that I think is really helpful. Uh, he says, Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Now, that's a long definition, but every part of it is really meaningful. Um, forgiveness is about a commitment. It's, it's, a, it's about a mindset. It's about setting a direction, setting a course. And that course is taken by the one who is offended, right? Forgiveness comes from the person who was sinned against. And obviously in the Lord's Prayer, we're talking about we have sinned against God. So God is the one who has been offended. And yet it's his commitment to pardon graciously, um, and even that is important, a gracious pardon. In other words, not because you have performed or even demonstrated that you are worthy of forgiveness, but on the basis of grace, I will pardon the repentant. That matters. Um, it matters in the discussion of forgiveness because forgiveness is for those who turn away from what they have done. Right? In, in one very real sense, I don't think we can say you can just forgive people who have no desire for forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that has to be sought by the repentant. And, and so they're pardoned from moral liability and there is reconciliation with the person, all right? When God forgives, there is reconciliation. And that's why I would say we shouldn't say God forgives everybody in the whole universe. I don't think that's actually an accurate statement in the gospel, that God just forgives everyone. Otherwise, nobody would have any moral culpability. There would be no need of hell. There would be no punishment from God if God just willy-nilly says, I forgive everyone. No, God's forgiveness is on the basis of those who have faith and who put their trust in him, and who turn away from their sin. Those are the, are the ones who are forgiven. Otherwise, there is no such thing as those who are saved and those who are unsaved, right? So forgiveness depends on there being a, 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 a repentance, and it includes a reconciliation. It's a return to relationship, right? So we can't say, I forgive you, and also say, I refuse to be in relationship with you. And that's certainly not what God does. So God, in his forgiveness, restores us to relationship, um, the final part of Braun's uh, definition says that not necessarily all consequences are eliminated, though. Right? And I do think that's an important part of forgiveness. There might still be consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there, nothing will further result from, from whatever the sin or injury was. And God certainly allows us to have natural consequences uh, as well. And, and yet what he teaches us is that we ought to be praying like we're in need of forgiveness. We ought to be asking, forgive us. There again, it's that plural word because we're reminded the Lord's Prayer is for all of us as a community, as Christians. It's not just individuals, it's not just give, uh, forgive me, but it's forgive us. Forgive us our debts. 
I think this debts word is clear in the context of, of sin, even though everywhere else in our Bibles it's used um, very literally, as in like a financial debt. Um, but here, I think it's very clearly used uh, in the term of a debt of sin. Uh, Luke's account in Luke 11.4 uh, uses the word sins. Um, and, and yet here it says, forgive us our debts, which again, in the richness of this prayer, makes us stop and ask ourselves, as Christians, do we still have a debt to God as a Christian? Because Jesus says, forgive us our debts. And yet this prayer is directly in the context of with his disciples. It's for those people who can call God our heavenly father. So in what sense can we say, as a believer, I have a debt to God? And and doesn't that contradict a place like Colossians 2, 13 and 14? What does Colossians 2, 13 and 14 say? It says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2 reminds us of the good news that we were dead in our trespasses, in our violation against God, uh, but God made us alive together with him. And and he forgave us, it says, all our trespasses. This is good news that all of our trespasses can be forgiven. And and that happened not by God just acting like we hadn't sinned, not by him pretending that we weren't sinners, but by him actively canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. And if I can, I just want to take a quick pause right, right here because the, the reality is that there are really just two kinds of people in this room. You, are, you either were dead in your trespasses and sins or you are dead right now in your trespasses and sins. And if you've come this morning and, and you're in that second category, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, would you let me appeal to you on the basis of the good news of Jesus Christ? You do not have to stay dead in your trespasses and sins. Instead, Jesus lived a life that was free from any sin. He didn't do a single trespass against God. Never once did he violate God's law. He lived perfectly. And yet still he died on a cross. But his dying on a cross was not because of his sin. It was because of your sin and and my sin. He was bearing your sin on his body on the cross if you will just put your faith in him. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead proving that he was stronger than Satan and stronger than sin and stronger than death. And if you will put your full trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is good news for you this morning if you are currently dead in your trespasses and sins. And the good news is Jesus can make you alive. You can't do enough good things to outweigh your bad things. You can't do enough to take your dead self to life, but Jesus already has. That is good news for you. And so I want to appeal to you, even today, if you do not trust Christ, let today be the day that you say, I'm done trusting in my own works. I'm done going my own way. I will turn from my sin and I will put all of my confidence in Jesus, not in any religiosity, not in any good things I've done, but I will trust Jesus and only Jesus. And he guarantees he will give you life and he will give you eternal life if you will believe in him. I hope you'll hear this appeal as your only hope for eternal life. 
And yet so many of you in this room, you would say, I, I do believe, I have put my trust in Jesus. These verses describe me. I was dead in my trespasses, but now I've been made alive. And he paid my debts. So why in the Lord's Prayer does he now say, forgive us our debts? I thought my debts were already forgiven. Well, there is an answer for that. And that answer is found in, in what it looks like after becoming a believer, after a Christian. Because the reality is that we still have bodies, we still have a flesh, and we still sin. Despite the fact that all of our sins have been forgiven, yet still we continue to do the wrong thing. And even though we've been given a new heart and and a new nature, yet still there are times when we choose to sin. The answer to that sin sin is still the cross of of Jesus Christ, and and yet asking Jesus to forgive us from our debts is not to say I need to be saved again, or that that Colossians 2 is not true, my debts haven't been nailed to the cross, is to return to a place of relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray when he says, forgive us our debts. It's a restoration of family relationship that, that we have lost. The reality is that when we sin, We do things like Ephesians 4.30, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And he's grieved even though Ephesians 4.30 goes on to say, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we certainly haven't lost our salvation. We are sealed, and yet the Holy Spirit is genuinely grieved when we sin. There is a real relational effect to our sin. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Our sin is not just neutral. Our sin is not just, well, that was all paid for at the cross. God himself is grieved by our sin as believers. And, and that sin needs a restoration. It needs a reconciliation. All right? Uh, if I do something foolish and sinful against my wife, she is not going to say, I'm no longer your wife. But that doesn't mean that I can't go, great, I don't have to say I'm sorry. Right? Something has been fractured in our relationship where now I need to make it right. I, I need to not get married again, but I need to restore a relationship that is already mine. That's what's happening when we ask our Father to forgive us our debts. It, uh, if you want to see kind of a, a, an object lesson of that in Scripture, it's John 13. Um, I can't remember um, when Pastor Scott was in John 13, but you'll, you'll probably remember the, the account. Um, because it's, it's before the Feast of Passover, um, and Jesus is getting ready to wash the disciples' feet. Um, and he gets to Peter, uh, bless his heart which is always what you say before you say something insulting to somebody, right? You say, bless your heart. Um, He comes to Peter, and and Peter uh, opens mouth, inserts foot, and says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter is undeterred by Jesus telling him, you'll understand later. He continues to talk. Uh, And Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You don't have a part with me if you haven't been washed. And Peter continues. Uh, he, he hasn't lost his, his um, foolishness. He's still going. Uh, and, and so he says, Lord, don't just wash my feet, but go ahead and wash my hands and my head. And Peter says, if washing my feet is good, washing all of me is better. Right? Um, and so he's really getting into it now. He goes from, you won't ever wash me, to go ahead and give me the total treatment. Um, and, and Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. The, the, the point of that is that justification is our total washing, right? You have been washed. You have been declared righteous by God. But, but our debts are the need of our constantly dirty feet. 
right? Our, our debts are that, the sins that we do that continue to plague us and follow us. You don't need to be justified again. Uh, you don't have a debt as in you will be condemned by God, but a debt is a way of describing what our sin is like in God's sight. There are a bunch of different New Testament words that are used for sin, uh, and they all emphasize a little different aspect of it. So when you read a word like trespass, it's emphasizing the idea of going outside the lines, right, or, or entering somewhere where you shouldn't have entered. Uh, I think that this word debts is used here for, for a couple reasons, but one of the ideas of debt is, is a sense of um, an obligation, or you owe something that you haven't paid. So we have to get back to our question, how as a Christian do I have a debt against God? Well, the reality is that even as a believer, we have an obligation to follow him in obedience and to practice righteousness, right? Uh, but that's not an option for us. We are obligated to live holy lives. There are things we are supposed to do and things we're supposed to not do. And so when we fail to meet that obligation to God to do what is right or to not do uh, what is wrong, you can describe that as a debt, right? It is, it is a sin, so we are obligated, really by grace, as well as our family relationship, to live out our righteous standing. Okay? You, you are righteous before God if you believe the gospel. And yet what we're obligated to do is, is flesh that out. And so every time we sin, uh, it's like we've gone back and said we, we're following the old master. And so we need forgiven of, of those debts of, of that failing to meet the obligation to God instead of returning to the old way of thinking or living. Because the reality is we don't always live out our righteous standing, right? It would be great if as soon as we got saved, we always only did righteousness from then on. But the thing we have to face and that Jesus forces us to face in this Lord's Prayer is that we really do have debts against God. And, and the answer to that is to go for forgiveness, Jesus knows that we will sin, and he provides forgiveness. And so when we, when we read just this little instruction to pray like we're in need of forgiveness, we have to ask ourselves, are we aware of the debts we have against God? Are, are we aware of how serious it is? Or have we possibly minimized our sins as Christians because we know that we've been forgiven at the cross, because we know we've been justified? Is it possible that we've actually downplayed what we, the wrong things we've done as Christians in the name of, but I know I'm justified, therefore it's not that big of a deal? But, beloved, it is that big of a deal to sin against a holy God. Even you as a believer, it should grieve our hearts like it grieves the heart of God. Why, after Christ died for my sins, would I any longer still live in them? Why would I do that? Um, what, why, Paul says, should we sin that grace could abound? God forbid, that's the last thing on our minds, that we would sin so that we would get more grace. Right? It should grieve us. It should, it should wound us when we sin against God. We should recognize this is, a, this is a debt, and it's a serious thing. And yet, I think sometimes we don't stop to consider what our debt is like against God. It's not as enjoyable in your prayer life to think about ways that you have sinned, is it? None of us like to face any shortcoming of any kind, right? We don't like to admit any elements of weakness in our looks, in our actions, in whatever else, let alone in our prayer lives to honestly face the fact that we have sinned. And yet, this is, this is a key part of, of the prayer that, that Jesus models for us, and when he teaches us to pray like we are in need of forgiveness, it makes us face who we really are. And doing that is better than ignoring the fact that, that we still do sin and we still do have a debt. 
There's other debts that I like to ignore and I don't like to think a lot about, but because I was thinking about debts in this passage, I got thinking as an American about our U.S. national debt. Now, there's a fun topic that I'm sure you like coming back to over and over again. Um, there's this website, and I can only assume that it's accurate. I don't know how they come up with these things, but you guys know there's a U.S. national debt site, right? Uh, and this site has this tracker, uh, and this tracker, um, it's got all of this, it's got lots of information on it. So it's got all of these green categories, which is all of your and my taxes. And so there's this one ticker, and it's, here's all the green that's going in, you know, and so it's money from all these different sources. But up at the top of the page, it has U.S. national debt, and that's in red, Right? And the alarming thing is that the red number is going much faster than the green number. Right? Uh, so I looked at it on Friday just because I wanted to be depressed. And, uh, and the number on Friday was $22,337,648,000,000 and then a bunch of thousands and, and other numbers after that. Right? Now, the fact of the matter is, my brain can't even conceive, a, like, $22 trillion is not even, like, a real number. That's like someone saying Googleplex, and I'm like, I don't know what that number is. That's just a silly number, right? $22 trillion, I just can't even, like, how does that even work? I have no idea, right? Um, but the, the reality is that even as believers, we should look at the sin we do, not as I have a small debt I haven't paid off, but I have $22 trillion of obligation to God, right? It's, it's one thing for us to just go, oh yeah, America's in debt. It's another thing to go, $22 trillion is a real number, right? It's one thing for us as Christians to go, yeah, I sin sometimes, and say, God, the holy God, sent his own son, and he died for my sin, and I, I just went back to that. There is a sobriety that we ought to have when it comes to thinking about the debts we have against God. Within the Valley of Vision, the great book of Puritan prayers, um, you you see this tension of I'm forgiven and yet I'm still struggling. Uh, Here's one of the prayers. I am guilty but pardoned. I am lost but saved. I am wandering but found. I am sinning but cleansed. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep me always clinging to thy cross. That is a great place to be right? Perpetual brokenheartedness. I, I do have debts to God. I, I have sinned, and yet I go for forgiveness over and over and over again. I think it's possible to face two potential extremes, uh, end, ends of the pendulum, if you will. Uh, number one, there is a danger that we can just be paralyzed by guilt when we think about our debts or our sin. And, and we can just focus on the debts part, and we can go, woe is me, and my sin is so great, and we just, we just think about us and our sin over and over and over again. The point of the Lord's Prayer is that we should pray for forgiveness, and God will forgive, right? So when he says, forgive us our debts, it's not to just bury you in the thought of debt, it's to say, you should ask for this, and you'll get it. So for the person that is tempted to be paralyzed by guilt and, and all you can focus on uh, is, is the debt, um, you need the advice of for every one look at yourself, take 10,000 at Christ, right? That is good advice for you if in personality and temperament you just get hung up on the debt side and you, you, you almost forget that it says forgive us our debts because that's what Jesus will do. And yet on the other end of the, of, of the extreme, uh, there is a danger of guilt-free living, and we act as if we don't have a debt or we have not sinned. And, and the point of the Lord's Prayer when it says, forgive us our debts, is that we really do need forgiveness. Right? Uh, we actually do need to ask for this in our prayer life. If you never ask God in your prayer life, forgive me of my debts, then you're doing it wrong. Right? You, you, you're, you're, praying, you're praying wrong. Why, how would you think that we don't, you don't need forgiveness? It, it could be that you have a wrong view of grace. 
Um, grace means I don't have to say I'm sorry. Um, you could have a wrong view of sin. Maybe you've renamed your sin as a mistake or a, um, it's a weakness, but you haven't wanted to call it a sin. Um, maybe you have a wrong view of God and you think God is like the, the loving, loving grandma that's just going to pat you on the head and go, there, there, son, it's okay that you did the wrong thing. Um, maybe you have a wrong view of self and you think, I'm really not that bad. There, there could be a number of reasons that you live free of guilt, but this passage tells us that we have real debts against God. So for the person who is living on the other extreme and they have no sense of guilt, you need these words to remind you that you need to ask for forgiveness because there is a genuine sense of debt against God. Okay? So we need to pray like we are in need of forgiveness. The verse doesn't end there, uh, which is given uh, rise to no shortage of, dis- of discussion and conversation because it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So, You read that and you think, does that mean that God's forgiveness is dependent on mine? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. What what does that mean? Um, The reality is that our forgiveness showcases that we know what it is to be forgiven. Refusal to forgive is not only a sin, but even calls into question our very salvation. How can you ask for fatherly forgiveness from God if you're not in his family? Right? And so when it says, forgive us uh, our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, if we have not forgiven those who have sinned against us, it, it makes us pause and say, do you even know what it is to be forgiven yourself? And if you don't know what it is to be forgiven, you certainly can't ask God to for- forgive you as a father. You need to ask him for salvation, not just for family relationship. This is, this is really the only uh, part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives further explanation to. Have you noticed that? I, I read that when we read the passage in verse 14, because it, it gives some explanation, it gives some clarification. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is super serious. And yet, uh, at, at the same time, uh, we know that we are, we are not made righteous on the basis of our works, right? We should be extremely clear on that. There is no salvation to be found in you doing good works. Um, what, what, so why, why would it say if we, if we forgive, then we'll be forgiven? If we don't forgive, we, we won't be forgiven. How, how can that be? Here's a quote from a commentator that I think is really helpful. Gracious forgiveness of others is a condition for receiving forgiveness from God in final judgment. Personal forgiveness is not a meritorious work that somehow earns divine forgiveness. However, the willingness to forgive others graciously is a hallmark of the true disciple of Jesus. Those who are truly repentant will express to others the same mercy they hope God will lavish on them. Listen, if this is a law requirement that you can't be saved unless you forgive others perfectly, then none of us are going to get saved, right? Because our forgivenesses are not perfect. They're, they're tinged with self-protection and some amount sometimes even of, of bitterness um, or, or of dis- disagreeal, um, disagreement with people. Um, we aren't able to forgive perfectly, but what Christ is after here is not you have to forgive for perfectly before I'll forgive you perfectly. It's that you have to be a follower of me. Uh, what he's after is family relationship. And Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, the proof that you and I are forgiven is that we forgive others. Uh, it'd, be no, it'd be no different than if we talked about love, right? Um, we love, why? Because he first loved us, right? Uh, our ability to love the people around us is because of the fact that God has loved us. Our forgiveness of the people around us is because we have first been forgiven. 
And if we are not able to forgive the people around us, that is such a serious disagreement with what we claim to be true, which is I have been forgiven by God. You see? So you can't claim I'm forgiven by God and then refuse to forgive others. That's even one of the reasons that Adrian read the passage he read this morning, right? Uh, we all would fe- we feel the injustice of that parable, right? Of the guy that he's forgiven a big debt and, and all of that is erased. It's a debt that he never could have paid. It, that was actually uh, multiple lifetimes of money that that guy owed that, that master, right? He never could have paid that debt in the parable. And yet he goes out, and the guy that owed him definitely owed him a lot of money. It was probably a year's worth of money that that guy owed him. But he grabs him by the neck, he starts choking him, and he says, pay me what you owe, right? And the people in the parable, as well as us, we read that, and we go, that's so incredibly unjust. Like, he was forgiven this huge debt, he wouldn't forgive this little debt. And in that way, that parable functions just like Nathan did with David, where he tells him the story about the sheep, and then he points at him, and he says, you are the man. Which one of us can go, I'm forgiven by God, and all my sins are gone, and and it's all by grace, and I'm so glad I'm forgiven. How dare you talk to me in a disrespectful tone? I'll never forgive you for that. That that doesn't match. you, You can't claim both those things. That's unjust. And that is not to minimize the fact that there are people that have been severely sinned against in this world. And perhaps even in this room. And you have struggled to forgive because you have been wounded so incredibly deeply. I am not minimizing that there are people that have sinned greatly against other people. And maybe even against you. But compare that to the forgiveness you got from God. Compare how much greater your offense was against the perfect God who made you, who has never done wrong, a moment in his life, and the fact that you chose to rebel against him. In fact, you sin by nature and by choice over and over and over again. That debt is incredibly greater than anything another human could do to us. And so it, it, tells, it, it says that we don't actually know what it is to be forgiven if we can't forgive the people around us. In terms of, of application, this is a major issue when we think about, about counseling or we think in our, in our personal lives. Why is this, why is forgiveness such a good test of our, of our fatherly relationship, of our family relationship with the Father? I think it's because it connects our debt to God with a very common experience of having debts against us, right? Um, all of us have been sinned against by other people in ways either small or, or in big. And we get the idea of someone owing us a debt. There are so many ways and times people sin against us and need to be forgiven. And those are all just little reminders of how much we need to be forgiven by God. And the fact that you have been forgiven by God. It's such a good test because if you think that it's a big deal that other people sin against you, but you don't think it's a big deal that you sin against God, you're missing a crucial element of the gospel and the character of God. All right? So we should pray like we are in need of forgiveness, and we should flesh out that need of forgiveness by even being willing to forgive the people around us. So let me ask you, would your prayer life show that you are aware of your sins against God? If we, could, if we could see into your prayer life what it looks like Sunday to Sunday, is there something in your prayer life that says, I know that I have debts against God? Do you have a habit of confession? Do you have a habit of self-reflection? Do, do, you, do you ever pause and consider the debts that you have against God and then respond by asking him for forgiveness? Because you will pray better and you will pray the way Jesus teaches us if you pray like you're in need of forgiveness. All right? I think that same awareness leads us to our, our, final, uh, our final point today, which is pray like we are desperate to overcome sin. 
Because we want to be forgiven our sins, and yet we don't want to do them anymore. If you have a self-awareness that I have sinned, it is great to know there is forgiveness. But it is also great to know that you don't have to do that sin, and you can fight against it. And we should be praying actively like we are desperate to overcome sin. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? Does, it says, lead us not into temptation. Does God ever tempt us to sin? We, we know clearly from the book of James that he doesn't. Um, God doesn't tempt anyone. So why does it say to pray, lead us not into temptation? Well, uh, notice that Matthew doesn't say, don't tempt us, right? He says, don't lead us into temptation. That's already important because if he wanted to, he could have just said, don't tempt us. But that would have been wrong because God never tempts. Don't lead us into temptation is asking for something different. I, I think what Jesus is, is after here. Uh, is, is for us to, in essence, be spared from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. Don't lead us to an environment, an, an opportunity for us to, to use to turn into sin. All right? uh, some people say, well, the answer to this is there's a difference between temptation and testing. We know that God tests, and so that, that's just the difference. Um, I'm not sure that's actually the best answer in, in this verse. Um, the reality is that testing can easily bleed over into temptation, right? Uh, so is there really that much of a distinction? I, I'm not so sure that it's, well, God would never tempt us, but he does test us. I, I think what, what Jesus is after is that we would not be led in, into that environment, into a moment where Satan could tempt us, right? Satan is the tempter, God is not. Why do I say that? Well, all you have to do is flip back two chapters and you get to Matthew 4.1. This is, this is in a very close context and we have to be able to deal with this honestly. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. What? So he's clearly led by the Spirit. But he's led into the wilderness for what? To be tempted by the devil. All right? Did God tempt Jesus in the wilderness? No. That would be blasphemous to say. Right? Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Yes, he most certainly did. As we think about our lives, we should never arrogantly think, I am just as strong and just as good as Jesus, and so I want to be led into a place where I could be tempted. It would be incredibly arrogant for us to ask for temptation. Only Jesus could withstand the kind of temptation he was led into. So praying that we would not be led into temptation but delivered from evil is the pleading of a self-aware heart. We need daily help for our spiritual survival, just like we need daily help for our, for our physical provision, right? But just like when it comes to our food, I think we can become callous to what God normally provides, right? So we have to force ourselves, give us this day our daily bread, because we assume that there's always going to be food in the supermarket. We're always going to have lots of food left over. And we're so used to God protecting us from temptation that it's almost like we become callous to the fact that we should be pleading for this to be true, that we should be desperate to avoid temptation. And instead, we waltz through our days, not even thinking about the fact that temptation could be around the corner at any moment, right? It's like God warning Cain that, that there is evil crouching at the door, and Cain just blissfully goes about his merry way. And yet, so many times, that's us as believers not pleading desperately to, to be kept free from temptation, the disciples themselves demonstrate for us conclusively how foolish it is for us to think that we stand. Uh, later on in Matthew, they will all say with Peter, Lord, we will never deny you. We will follow you forever. 
And Jesus says, watch and pray so you do not enter into temptation. And when they go to watch and pray, what do they do? They are so confident in themselves that they think it's okay to take a nap. Right? They, they are so unaware of danger that they can go to sleep. Now, listen, if, if you were in the military and you were in an active war zone and it was your job to be on watch... And, and you thought there was actually people out there in the darkness that were coming to kill you, you would not easily go to sleep. You would care about being awake. You would care about being watchful. You would care about your friends who maybe are sleeping that you're supposed to protect, right? You would be alert even at a time when you normally would sleep because you would be watching so you didn't fall into danger. And yet Jesus tells us you need to be watchful lest you fall into temptation. And the disciples went, I'm going to go ahead and get some extra Z's. Right? They felt totally confident, and then they completely fail, and they all run away in Jesus' hour of great need. How viciously are you fighting your sin? Or, or have you gone to the point where you go, like, I'm doing okay. Like, I'm all right. This doesn't need to be a normal part of my prayer life. I don't need to, and sin's kind of a downer to think about, and actually, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Right? And that arrogance can lead us to not pray the way Jesus teaches us to pray, which is, please, God, don't lead us into temptation. Don't let us get to a point where we can be tempted by the devil. Scripture is clear that Satan is the tempter. 1 Corinthians 7.5, in the context of a marriage relationship, Satan tempts us because of our lack of self-control. Uh, in Galatians 6.1, we should keep a close watch on ourselves, lest we also should be tempted. Temptation is a reality for us as believers. And we should be desperate to stay as far away from it as is humanly and divinely possible. Bonhoeffer wrote, Christians ask God not to put their puny faith to the test, but to preserve them in the hour of temptation. Notice how the contrast, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our desire is deliverance, not that we would get drawn into temptation. The idea of deliverance is to be rescued from something that we could never escape on our own. Uh, it's what the people around Jesus cross mockingly threw at him. He believes in God. Let God deliver him, right? They were saying, you are totally hopeless unless God does something. That's the concept of, of deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Um, there's also a lot of debate around that, that one word. I, I do think that that word evil is actually pointing us to being delivered from Satan. I think you could understand that as be, deliver us from the evil one. Not that Satan necessarily comes personally to tempt every one of us, but Satan as the one who is overall temptation, the one, the one whose, whose demons and worldview provide the temptation that is all around our flesh, he's the one that we need to be delivered from. Uh, there's a variety of reasons I, I would say that. In, in the original language, um, it could be either evil things or the evil one. And the way the word ends, it could go either way. But the context of this passage, uh, I think, points us to thinking of this as the evil one, even because of Matthew 4.1, where clearly it was Satan who, who was tempting. Um, Matthew himself, in uh, several other places in his book, refers to Satan as the evil one. When he tells the parable of the soils, you remember, uh, he talks about um, the path, and, and it says, whenever anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, who comes and snatches away what was sown? The evil one. Right? Uh, he says it in Matthew 13, 38, when he gives another parable about the weeds um, that are sown in with the, with the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Right? So Matthew uses this term, evil one, consistently to talk about Satan's activity in our world. Uh, and it's in other places in our New Testaments as well. Right? Ephesians 6 says that we should take the shield of faith, 
with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Right? So I, I do think it's best to understand this. Whether it's evil things or evil one, the point is that there is evil around us. But, but listen, beloved, when you pray, you need to realize there is somebody who is your enemy. And although our modern world wants us to say believe in the devil is unscientific and it's ancient, uh, the modern world is wrong when it says that. The devil is a real angelic being, and he has real power. In fact, I hate to break it to you, but he's stronger than you. The devil will beat you. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You are not strong enough to beat him, but Jesus is. And when you are in Christ, you have all of the power that you need, and yet we ought to be praying that we should be delivered from evil. Jesus doesn't say, um, just give us a little more strength so that we can beat the evil one. The reality is that we need a savior, not an assistant, right? We need a hero and not someone to just help us a little bit. We need deliverance. We need rescued, all right? So the reality is that God never tempts us, and yet there is an evil one who, who wants us to fall into sin, and so we should pray, we should pray desperately that we not be led into temptation, but instead we be rescued from this evil one. We're not looking for a test of strength, but for rescue from being shown to be weak. Another uh, church father said, men are weak, wherefore we must not fling ourselves into temptations, but if we have fallen into them, we must pray that we not be swallowed up. You can know that God can protect you from temptation, but also he can deliver you from evil. When you deal, do feel those fiery darts, when you do feel that, that temptation, God is able to deliver you. That's why we're told to pray for it. We should, we should pray like we are desperate to overcome sin because sin is real and Satan is real and we must fight against him. This is a, a longer quote, and yet I think it's useful. So if you can hang in there and hear this from Calvin, I, I, think it's, I think it's a helpful commentary on this verse. Here's what Calvin said. Here we must carefully note that it is not in our power to engage the great warrior the devil in combat or to bear his force and onslaught. Otherwise, it would be pointless or a mockery to ask of God what we already have in ourselves. Obviously, those who prepare for such a combat with self-assurance do not sufficiently understand what a ferocious and well-equipped enemy they have to deal with. Now we seek to be freed from his powers from the jaws of a mad and raging lion. If the Lord did not snatch us from the midst of death, we could not help being immediately torn to pieces by his fangs and claws and swallowed down his throat. Yet we know that if the Lord be with us and fight for us, still in his might we shall do mightily. Let others trust as they will in their own capacities and powers of free choice, which they seem to themselves to possess. For us... Let it be enough that we stand and are strong in God's power alone. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's about reliance on him instead of reliance on self. Does your prayer life make it look like you are desperate to overcome sin? The, the Lord's Prayer begins with this heavenly focus on God before descending to the very earthly reminder that we have an evil enemy who is around us. And yet, all of these principles teach us how we can pray and pray better. As we conclude, can I ask you, is there maybe just one of these principles that you say, I can focus on this and I need to apply this in my prayer life? Um, maybe you have not been praying like there is none like God. Maybe you have become too casual or you've forgotten about his holiness. Um, 
Maybe you have not been praying like the most important thing in the universe is whatever God wants. You've gotten wrapped up in your prayer list of please give me this and do this and do that, and you've forgotten about God's will and his kingdom. Um, Maybe you're not praying like you depend on God for all your earthly needs. Uh, Maybe you're out there and you're working hard and you're doing everything else to meet your earthly needs and you've forgotten to pray and ask God. Are you praying like you're in need of forgiveness? Or or have you overlooked the fact that this is a regular part of your prayer life is asking God for forgiveness? Or, Or even praying like we're desperate to overcome sin, that Satan is like a raging lion who is around you and that desperation fuels your prayer life. Even if it's just one of these categories, can I encourage you Pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, and you will be praying better.